0: How can films, photographs, and the human experience convey the urgency of the climate story? Climate One conversations feature all aspects of the climate emergency, the individual and the systemic, the exciting and the scary, people who are in power and disempowered. I'm Greg Dalton.
1: We always thought In Community Truth was a redemption story about a politician who lost an election, and it was his mission in life to tell this truth that he knew. Davis Guggenheim is a writer,
0: director, and producer. His documentaries include He Named Me Malala, Waiting for Superman, and a certain Academy Award-winning film with former Vice President Al Gore. As director of An Inconvenient Truth, Davis learned that good climate storytelling requires a delicate balance, a compelling character, and a path to action.
2: As artists, all we can do is hope that you can make people stop for one moment and think
0: Christina Mietermeyer is a photographer, conservationist, and marine biologist. She founded the nonprofit Sea Legacy with her partner, photographer Paul Nicklin. In her photographs, Christina tries to avoid romanticizing the indigenous people she depicts.
3: I felt that I had to deserve the honor to tell the story. And part of the trial and error was testing my conviction that I could do it in a way that honored the voices of the people I work for, the indigenous people in the film.
0: Céline Cousteau is a filmmaker and explorer and the granddaughter of pioneering ocean adventurer Jacques Cousteau. Her new documentary, Tribes on the Edge, bears witness to indigenous communities in the Amazon who are fighting for survival amid deforestation, oil extraction, and gold mining. The project began with an email a few years ago from a man she'd met at a conference in the Amazon named Beto.
3: Beto is from the Marubo tribe um, in the Vale do Javari indigenous territory in the Brazilian Amazon. I was there in 2007 uh, filming a conference of the contacted indigenous people of that territory as part of a film called Return to the Amazon um, as we were going back to places my grandfather had been to in the early 80s. And when I was there, I, I bore witness to the stories of... Um, Critical health issues, uh, hepatitis, malaria, being two of them. Now, COVID is added on top of that. That the Indigenous people have been facing for decades um, started with the colonizers in the 16th century. And I was heartbroken. I mean, we, you know, I'm a filmmaker and I tell stories, but I also watch stories. And to be in the midst of it um, impacted me in a tremendous way. And I wanted to do more than than just do that one film. It was years later that Beto sent me an email and he said, I want you to tell my people's story. I want the world to know we exist and we want to live. Um, and, and there's really, um, there's no other answer but yes. And yes, I rearranged my life to make this part of it. Um, that was in 2010. So it's now 11 years later um, and the film just came out in February.
0: Yeah, congratulations on that. We'll get into Indigenous people a little bit later. But Celine, your family is synonymous with oceans. Are you more passionate? And what were you doing? You were in the forest, which may be an unusual place for a cousteau, Maybe not. Um, But are you more passionate about sea life or people?
3: Um, I'm passionate about the human story at the center of the environmental story, no matter what ecosystem. Um, I'm just as comfortable being thrown in the ocean as I am hiking in the jungle, Um, I I like to think I have a fin on one foot and a hiking boot on the other ready to go. Um, I think the important part is really making the human nature connection no matter where it happens.
0: Davis Guggenheim, your dad won four Academy Awards for making documentary films, including one for a remembrance of Robert F. Kennedy shortly after his assassination was shown at the Democratic National Convention. You followed in your dad's footsteps, and in the 1980s, when you were in college, you wanted to make a documentary about apartheid. What advice did your dad give you then?
1: Well, I told him I was very excited. I was because I, I I admired my dad. He was a wonderful man and a great filmmaker. And I said, I'm going to make this film about apartheid. And he said, well, who's it about? I go, well, it's not about people. It's about this big thing and it's this movement. And he's like, well, if you don't have a person you're following, that's really hard as a storyteller. And I've, I've kept that with me. He always said that people, when they're watching a movie, care about people. And uh, whenever I've uh, done that, it's worked out pretty well. Whenever I've forgotten that, my films get a little too far off and a little bit hard to identify with. I think I'm always trying to find stories that are universal that can bring more people together. And if you can humanize almost anybody, there's a few people who you can't humanize, but uh that that really I think is a, a great a great thing. And that's and I keep I keep my father on my shoulder every day at work.
0: Mm. In connection with humans and nature is a theme in all of your work, and see a lot of documentary films about climate change. I think they lose that human element they 're about issues and systems and Christina Biedermeyer, you say that we want to imagine wild animals accepting us into their world, a world where humans evolved for thousands of years. How do you think about that when you're photographing wild animals in their in their habitat?
2: It's an interesting thing. I enjoy so much uh, your comments, David and Celine, because it is true. It's about the human experience as a citizen of this planet. And most people are for whatever reason, not in a position to experience that in the way that so many of us have, with a fin on, on one foot and a hike foot on the other. And a lot of people are afraid, frankly, you know. And I think we have raised an entire generation that is afraid of getting dirty or getting sick or whatever, and they don't go to nature. So when you can create images that allow people to imagine themselves interacting with nature, especially with animals, I think people just crave that, you know, the friendship with an octopus. Can you imagine?
0: Yeah, well that that's quite quite a film. Celine Cousteau, you talk about swimming near a humpback whale and it looking you in the eye and acknowledging you. What is it like to come eye to eye with a whale?
3: <laughs> um you feel really small. And I don't mean just in size, I mean in importance. Um, because we are, we're tiny. I mean, human beings are tiny on this planet. We're just really numerous and, and impactful, which can be negative or positive. Um, but that moment that that a humpback whale looked at me, I just kind of stopped in the water and just felt my existence. Um, it's hard to describe. And, and you know, touching on what Christina says, a lot of people either are afraid to or don't have the opportunity to get in nature, but there's so many um, there's so many moments in nature that really touch on the heart of what we are in this, in this bigger system, that we are just one species amongst others. And that moment eye to eye with a humpback whale, for me, was just a, a, a stark example of it and a privileged one.
0: Christina Mittermeier, you have a million and a half followers on Instagram, which is pretty darn big. And yet you also say that makes you feel small. But are are we supposed to feel small in nature or is feeling small in the face of climate change? um...
2: I think we're an arrogant species. You know, I think I, I think it humbles us and makes us really uncomfortable when we feel small and insignificant. For me, the act of stepping into nature is always um, a tacit contract where you become part of a food chain and you become part of of a system that you don't control. I like that feeling. Uh, But uh, I think humans, especially, you know, the culture that we have created for ourselves over the last 100 to 150 years is one of supremacy
0: over nature.
2: And, I mean, I think many of us, that's what we're trying to change with our films and our narratives, you know, try to create a more equitable relationship with nature.
0: I went to, I lived in China in the early 80s, uh, late 80s after college. And I remember, so the classical Chinese paintings would always show these huge mountains and show the humans as, you know, very tiny relative to nature, which was, I thought was like... Odd to me. That's not. I hadn't seen that before. Going to, to live in China. Davis Guggenheim. The poster for *An Inconvenient Truth* features a hurricane coming out of a smokestack. You know, what are the dominant images you think of that define the climate narrative?
1: Well, it's interesting when uh, that poster was presented to me by Paramount Studios. I thought this is sensationalistic. It's um, over the top. The, the, the in the trailer, it says the scariest movie you'll ever see, and I was really upset about it. I mean, I I went to the mat saying, this is a terrible way to market this film. It turned out to be a really good way to market this film. So I learned a lot. Um, I, when I made the film, I wanted the tone of it to be um, moderate and not political and to reach as far to the middle and even to the right as I could. Um, so I that the, the lesson for me is that marketing a film is very different than Making a film and what your story is but the the uh, there's a lot of I have a lot of answers to that question, but I think for that movie, the images that seemed to resonate with people were the polar bear swimming in the water and you know putting its paw up on a piece of ice that was too small to find <laughs> um firm ground and swimming away back into the endless ocean people you could hear people gasp in every screening of that movie. And then Al Gore was really smart about, at that point, reinforcing in almost every slide the um, CO2 marching up and it, how it would go up, how you visualized it. It's sort of imprinted. But that's, a, that's more than 10 years ago, and, and in a sense, the, the, the challenge is very different. Back then, it was like, is it real, and do we understand it? I think now the challenge is it's about now that a lot of people believe it's real and that we're causing it, now what do we do and how do we activate people? So I think the images um, might have to change. Christina Midderminer, polar
0: bears are probably the most iconic image associated with climate change. Your partner... Photographer Paul Nicklin made a video of a starving polar bear in the Canadian Arctic in 2017 around Baffin Island. I think I was there around that time. Uh, You were there as well. The National Geographic video went viral and reportedly was seen more than 2 billion times. Your photograph, I think, was the top 10 for the year. Looking back now, what do you see as the lasting impact of that weak, hungry, sad polar bear limping around in the final hours of its life?
2: yeah I think um Davis and Celine would agree with me that it's 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 never the one moment you know I remember Davis when the Inconvenient Truth came out the book. It was a sense of relief, and you know I felt almost like a polar bear you know because for those of us who have made a living trying to convey with science with images you know what's happening and the gravity of the situation and You know, the the denial arguments were so exhausting that when Convenient Truth came out, it was really a moment that it all turned out. And yet it didn't last, right? I mean, people move on. And so we are continuously striving, Greg, to make those iconic moments. And as artists, all we can do is hope that you can make people stop for one moment and think. And The Starving Polar Bear was that. You know, we had no idea that it was going to cause such a stir, but yes, it it went viral. And so many things were revealed, just how emotionally invested people are in the welfare of animals, how upset they get when action is not taken. But we also got a really deep look at the uh, enormous amount of people that are still in denial at uh, the machinery of communications behind the continual denial of the problem and how well-funded they are. You know, we started getting a glimpse of, at all these think tanks that are out there putting out the uh, wrong information. And the one thing I kept thinking, Greg, was, They're investing so much money in perpetuating this situation and the lie. How much money are we investing? Because as a filmmaker, as a photographer, it's always so hard to get the funding to go out there to tell more stories. So are we investing at the same scale at the solution? And this is a question for all the donors out there. Uh, But yeah, The Starving Polar Bear, for me, it's just a page in the book. I hope to make many more images that continue to stir our emotions into action.
0: You're listening to a Climate One conversation about climate storytelling employing images and sound. Coming up, showing humility and earning trust as a storyteller.
1: It was awkward at first. It was generally awkward. They would often touch my hair to see if it was real. They thought I was the oddest person in the world. And they laughed at me and uh, that was a good sign.
0: That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about visual climate storytelling with Academy Award-winning director and producer Davis Guggenheim, photographer and marine biologist Christina Miedermeyer, and explorer and filmmaker Céline Cousteau. Her new documentary, Tribes on the Edge, explores the threats to the land, rights, and health of the indigenous peoples of the Javari Valley and the Brazilian Amazon. One ano and six já. Um, yeah. four,
3: four malaria, four cases of malaria.
0: Despite not wanting to make herself part of the story, Celine found that her presence in the film was one way to humanize a group of people that affluent viewers in rich northern countries might otherwise have difficulty relating to.
3: I did place myself in front of the camera so that I would create a bridge um, so that the audience would follow me as somebody perhaps more familiar, more accessible, um, the neighbor and follow me into this adventure and and through me meet the people that affected my life. Um, I also chose to um, be more vulnerable than perhaps I would have wanted because the story wasn't about me, but I chose to actually film inside my home. I'm fiercely protective of my personal space, um, but I thought it was important if I asked the audience to stretch their ability to create a connection with people they don't know, that I had to let them in a little bit more than I otherwise would have. Um, So that's one way. Another one is that I didn't craft any of these scenes. Um, I didn't ask any of the indigenous people, no matter which village or which uh, tribe we were visiting, I didn't ask them to put together a ceremony or a ritual or ask them to go hunt. We really just followed the ebb and flow of their life. And sometimes that means we may have missed out on the absolute beauty shot that would have made, you know, the scene in the film. Um, but I think it showed something much more intimate because it was authentic. And and I think that at the end of the day, that shows in the film. Um, it's not the blockbuster, uh, big splash film. It's it's truth, it's intimacy. Um, and some of it's ugly and and some of it's beautiful.
0: Yeah, a lot of it is is beautiful, and you do see your son bounding down the stairs in your home before you set off. Um, but connect for us the resource, there's the sort of the "why should I care?" question. We hear a lot about the Amazon as this faraway place uh, for someone listening to this in Canada, Europe, North America. How are, are we connected, the, our lives, to the people you portray in Brazil and the in the Amazon?
3: A lot of ways. Um, One very simple one, if you enjoy breathing, you're connected to the Amazon and its people. Um, About 20% of our oxygen comes from the Amazon rainforest. And where there are Indigenous people, where there is protected Indigenous land, there's no deforestation. There's actually less deforestation on Indigenous land than there is on conservation land. So the presence of people in this case creates an additional barrier to protect the territory. Um, The Javari Territory in particular is uh, deemed irreplaceable in terms of biodiversity by the IUCN, the International Union of Conservation for Nature. Um, And one of the projects we're hoping to do is discover that biodiversity. Um, And that biodiversity is something we all count on. um, If you think about your pharmaceuticals, uh, most of our pharmaceuticals have their roots in nature. If there is undiscovered biodiversity, that's the potential for our future medicine. Um, And there's no better example than what the world is going through today when we think of something that could impact all of us. Um, And then there's just all the products we use. Very simply put, I mean, if, you know, if we have gold in any of our jewelry, if we have hardwood in any of our furniture, um, a a lot of those things that come from places like that. And we may not know that they are harvested illegally, um, but it's important to understand that there are a lot of these products that that come from. Uh, extraction that is unsustainable or impacting Indigenous lives.
0: Christina Mittenmeyer, you also work and photograph a number of Indigenous people, some really uh, beautiful photographs. Who is Will George and how do you give him his power back by taking his photograph?
2: Um, Will George is uh, a member of the Sleil-Waututh First Nation in British Columbia, a community that has been impacted uh, by the construction of uh, oil pipelines through their territory. And they have been fighting the construction of another pipeline coming in from the interior, from Alberta, uh, to carry crude to the coast of British Columbia, which then gets carried to China and then gets to, you know, for refining and then gets brought back into canada and will george and his uh, tribe members have been standing up to the construction of this pipeline have been disrupting have been protesting and they invited me to uh, come and spend a day with them and photograph them and i they built a beautiful what they call the watch house where people could come in and have ceremony and spend time together and like celine i Don't like photographing indigenous people as if they were encapsulated in the past in a romanticized way that no longer exists. You know, they live and walk amongst us and they look like us. And so does Will. You know, Will works in the Home Depot, but uh, he he brought in his uh, family's headdress and he put it put it on. And I asked him, I said, how angry are you at, you know, the infractions that this government imposes on indigenous people, not just his tribe, but so many of them. And he, you know, expressed his anger. And when I showed him the photograph, and I don't know if this has happened to you, Celine, but for communities like the Sailbatuths and so many others in British Columbia they were forbidden for generations to wear their traditional costume to speak their language they were you know you know in, they were taken to uh, re- residential schools where they were taught not to speak their language anyway when you, when you show them a photograph of themselves wearing their family's ancestral regalia you return something to them and part of it is the power and part of it is the pride and part of it is the understanding of the place they have in this fight and to protect our planet.
0: One photo of yours, uh, Christina, that I really like is a young indigenous person sitting on rocks near the ocean with a fishing net in their hand, face paint, headdress and Chuck Taylor's sneakers, uh, <laughs> which just shows that like this is a, you know, a real modern teenage, probably a teenager. Um, so tell us about that photo and what it's. But yeah,
2: that is the northern tip of Vancouver Island, a community called Alert Bay, and the Namgis people live there, and um. I was invited and I was so honored uh, because the potlatch is uh, something that has returned now that uh, Indigenous Canadians have more opportunity to express uh, their culture. So I was invited to a potlatch and I was surprised by so many young people who are now learning the language and the songs and the dances. And I noticed this girl because she was part of that potlatch, her passionate dance, but I was not allowed to photograph in the big house. So I, I I looked her up on Facebook. And I talked to her and I said, you know, I would love to photograph you. And so we, we set up a date on the beach and this is how she showed up.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's great. Uh, Davis Guggenheim, you had never met a Muslim family before you made a film about one of the most famous Muslims in the world, Malala. How did you approach that uh, going into that that culture? What kind of humility did you have to summon? And yeah, how did you go about getting so close to... Yeah. One of the most famous teenagers in the world.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It was interesting. I, um, it's a great question. She was 15 and a half and was still recovering from, from, um, I mean, she woke up in a UK hospital, not knowing what the UK was, um, with, I I approached it the same way I approach everything, which is uh, an, an attempt at humility, um, an openness, um, a vulnerability. I think vulnerability is a really important thing. It's like, are you, and, 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 um, uh but this family um it's you know it's malala her mother torpakai her her father ziauddin her brothers kushal and Atal. and um maybe it was introduced to a few muslims in my life but never welcomed into a home and uh, it was awkward at first it was generally awkward but uh within a few days we all fell in love with each other they 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 would often touch my hair to see if it was real they thought it would, i was the oddest person in the world. And they laughed at me and uh, that was a good sign. But I'm sure that Christina and Celine feel the same way where you, you know, um, it's always different with everybody. But the most important thing is you earn trust slowly and over time and and being vulnerable.
2: And can I add just a little thought, Greg? I promise to be short. The other interesting thing for those of us who work with uh, people that are not from the Western world is that we're all on social media. You know, I've made friends with almost everybody that I have photographed, even in remote indigenous communities in the Amazon and stayed in, you know, in touch with them through WhatsApp or Facebook. And so it gives you the opportunity when you get an email or a text from somebody like Will George saying they're taking me to jail. I would love to use that photograph, you know, to rally for my defense. It gives you just such an honor to be able to continue to help.
4: Mm.
0: we're talking about climate storytelling with Celine Cousteau Christina Mittermeiter and Davis Guggenheim I'm Greg Dalton we're recording this show with a live audience and one question from uh, listener Lisa are there other films in the pipeline like My Octopus Teacher which was about love and connection and a deep knowing of place and this is I, don't know, I think a lot of people saw this uh, film I know that when my wife and I watched it she would, people were just gushing about it it was, it was amazing um, so Chris Christina, tell us about the film a little bit and, and how you reacted to seeing it.
2: Uh, I mean, first of all, uh, Craig Foster, the filmmaker, is a dear friend and his wife, Swati, and I have been fellow warriors in many conservation battles. And so I knew that they were making this film. And the part that they struggled, and this is where I would love to get Davis's and Celine's thoughts, was how do you provide a call to action to people that are watching you film that's tangible and in the moment? And the octopus teacher was, yes, of course, about the relationship of this man with the his backyard, this beautiful kelp forest, and and the octopus. But there, the deeper intention that they had was, you, you know, how do we use this to rally for protection? There is a devastating octopus fishery. Uh, all these ropes have entangled so many whales, and it's slowly caused, causing the demise. And that's where I want us to go as a an artistic filmmaking community to being able to use the social media and the technology platforms platforms that we have to build the larger community and the call to action that people can continue taking.
0: And Céline Cousteau, it seems like the one thing that that, you know, there's a one to one relationship in that film that's very deep and beautiful. And that's very different than a lot of uh, nature documentaries, et cetera, where you see, you know, a charismatic megafauna briefly and then it and then it moves on. But there is like I mean, there I mean, there is intimacy between this exotic creature and this and this man. So tell us your, yeah, your thoughts about My Octopus Teacher and wh- what it illustrates.
3: Well, I think what worked really well there was um, was that it was a relationship it doesn't matter if it was intra-species, it was a relationship and and you inherently understood that and you understood the love that was created the admiration um <clears throat> the peace that that was brought to him by by having this contact with nature the reverence he had for the animal the understanding the animal allowed him to be in its in its realm and its world um the people that I that I have heard from who aren't in our In in our circles, I'll say, of either filmmaking or nature or environmental protection, we're in awe of it and they all felt it. So, to, to kind of answer the question, Christina, as well, of like, how do we get people to motivate to action? I think part of what we do in storytelling is intangible. And that's, I know, for me, really difficult because we share a story with the world. We don't really know what they're going to do with it. And we don't necessarily, at the end of a film, just want to say, here's your to do list. Because part of it is is about shifting consciousness. And I think that that's something that's, it's, I know it's hard for me, um, but I have a filmmaker friend who years ago said this to me. He says, do not ever forget that one of your main um, focus and goals is to shift consciousness. And you may never know exactly what your films or stories have done, but you need to believe in, in what you're doing. Um, so there's no easy answer of, you know, putting a little PSA at the end of your film, kind of breaks the magic of that love between this human and this animal. Um, I think people will follow up and they, and they do in, in their own ways. I know some people who are not eating octopus anymore because of the film. And if that's all that was done, I'm, I'm applauding it.
0: David um, you know, there's the, Documentary films now are platforms for action. Participant media and other groups are trying to, you know, use them to mobilize people in Inconvenient Truth uh, and, you know, awaken a generation. Your thoughts on My Octopus Teacher. In fact, you noted earlier when we talked that the man seemed to have a closer relationship with the octopus than his own son.
1: Yeah, I, mean, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, they seem like a lovely family. And that was more of a question, not knowing anything. But I like what Celine was saying. I think the filmmaker's job first is to tell a story. Uh, I always like to think of the movies I make and say, okay, what is the story outside of the issue that you're making? We always thought In Community Truth was a redemption story about a politician who lost an election, and it was his mission in life to to tell this truth that he knew. Uh, And, of course, the movie had tons of charts and graphs and all that sort of stuff, but at the core, heart of it, you identified with him. I think what's great about an octopus teacher, it's a love story. And like every great love story, love stories are always – the formula for love stories are the simplest of formulas, which is, you know, these two – I would usually say people, but like these two <laughs> organisms, you know, and they want to be together desperately. And it could be Dr. Chivago and it could be um, a teen flick, but a great love story are the obstacles that, that get in their way. They they come closer and then the obstacles pull them apart. They get closer and the obstacles that pull them apart. And, you know, what's beautiful about that movie is it just works as a love story first. And um, I think that's our job first is to, is to tell that story that casts a spell on you. And uh, sometimes, not always, I think sometimes the message, and it happens in my movies a lot, the message breaks that spell. And so you have to figure out a way to, we had a great, lesson we learned when we made it a truth where we had no prescription and we showed people the film and they're like what are we supposed to do <laughs> and so we learned at the end to put uh, things you can do in the end credits and that was a great breakthrough for us so you're constantly trying because I a lot of my films are about issues but how do you tell that story and keep the spell from breaking and then give people what they want <laughs> once you've cast the spell and they're asking for it so, Christina, that gets to,
0: you know, beauty. You know, there's someone uh, told me that the terms, you know, apocalyptic sublime. That there's, you know, there's the imagery that's used in climate is all of this disappearing beauty. A lot of it is very depressing. A lot of the climate story is very depressing. Here's melting glaciers, melting this, you know, dying trees, death everywhere. How do you wrestle with the emotional balance of, you know, you want to find inspirational beauty, but there's also loss and sadness in that, I mean, in that beauty.
2: You know, because storytelling is so ingrained into who we are as humans, uh, we're not the first ones to come up with, (laughs) with how to tell those stories. And for me... You know the great storytellers, like uh, Reverend Martin Luther King. Uh, you know he didn't start his speech by telling us, "I have a nightmare." He <laughs> he he told us about his dream and this vision that he had for a better, you know, more equ- equitable society. And then he reminded us on the same speech of the perils and the pits and all the hard work ahead to make it better. And then he reminded us again, you know, if we do the work, this is where we'll go. And I think a a, a good narration takes you through those emotional valleys and hills uh, because it's just human.
0: You're listening to a conversation about climate storytelling using image and sound. This is Climate One. Coming up, overcoming despair and storytelling exhaustion.
3: When somebody in the audience asked Beto of the Muribó tribe, what can they do to help? They saw the film. What can we do? Beto says, now that you've seen my story, keep telling the story because it becomes yours. And I think that that's something that we can ask our audiences to do.
0: That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about the visual dimensions of climate storytelling with filmmaker and explorer Céline Cousteau, photographer and conservationist Christina Mittermeyer, and Academy Award-winning director and producer Davis Guggenheim. Our ability to deeply absorb images of nature depends on how our brain receives them. Laura Sewell has taught eco-psychology and environmental perception at Prescott and Bates Colleges. We asked her to help us understand how visual media connects us with the natural world.
4: When we're sort of gazing into the natural world or in it, we're not cognitively trying to do very much. Whereas when we look at facts or graphs or lists of data or reading books about climate science, it takes a lot of cognitive effort. And we, for the most part, don't like to work too hard cognitively. It takes a lot of metabolic energy. We almost always want to choose cognitive ease. So if there's imagery that is easy to access, and it's got these wonderful natural associations, we're going to absorb it more readily. Let's take advertising using nature to seduce us into buying a Jeep that will then tear up the terrain. There's no mistake there. There's an understanding that the associations are activated and we're feeling all sorts of pleasurable stuff and we want that Jeep too, but... There's a lot of good work out there. Some of those Patagonia and North Face short story adventure films, they've got great footage. They show the reasons to be engaged, the wonder of the world. And in the background is the message of this being in peril, this adventuresomeness, this possibility So here's great human potential, great experience. And just remember, it might be lost, but you've got all sorts of ability.
0: That was Dr. Laura Sewell, author of Sight and Sensibility, the Eco-Psychology. Of perception. Davis Guggenheim, you're interested in how the human brain perceives climate threats. How conscious are you of how nature's being used in the video and photographic advertisements that you see
1: on screen? I'm just at the beginning of research on another movie about what I simplistically call the psychology of climate change. So I'm thinking about how this heavy, heavy sense of catastrophe plays on all of us as we live our lives, especially on my own children um, and everyone's children. Uh,
0: well, tell us about your, your son's 21st birthday. You bought him a, his first case of beer, and it ended up in a surprising conversation about climate change.
1: Yeah. So this is a couple of years ago. He was in college. It was his uh, junior year. And uh, my wife and I said, can we visit you on your 21st birthday? And he said, sure. And so it was, it was a big, really fun night with all his roommates, like eight of his friends, all, little mismatched tables pushed together and beer and take out Chinese food. And it was just the most fun I've had in a long time. Still, I, it's one of my best memories ever. But about two o'clock in the morning, I asked one of his best friends. I said, well, how many children do you think you'll have? This, uh, he, uh, this is uh, my my son's friend, and he said, uh, oh, I, I wouldn't bring children into this world. And then we went down the line, and none of my son's friends said they would bring children into this world, including my son. And the striking thing was that, um, but it was also the fact that very few of them talk about climate change. And so they feel this great sense of catastrophe, and yet they don't deal with it on a day-to-day basis. And I'm i i, want, I, I I'm interested in how they carry that. And perhaps if there's a way to sort of unlock that and understand that, then maybe that's another angle into this problem.
2: Can I say something about that, Greg? Because I, too, have children of the same age, and none of them want to have children either, which is no surprise. But they live very close to the issue through us, right, through our passion. I noticed that young people feel in general so overwhelmed and disempowered and, you know, to deal with this a lot. So I wanted to find a way of connect, giving them an opportunity to be connected that was not a heavy lift emotionally or otherwise. So we... Built a platform where you can tell short stories so it 's very you know contained, but they 're emotional and they 're beautiful and At the end of every story there 's a call there 's something that you can do right then and there you know it can be a sign a petition or tweet to a prime minister or donate five dollars to a community that sense of i 've done my part is really important, and through stories, you can tell people you know this is what you contributed to. When they hear that if they're part of a bigger community making a difference, I think it starts lifting that sense of foreboding doom.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's very deep. It's one of the things that's mobilized climate action lately as young people um, putting pressure. And, and yeah, there's a certain um, resignation, um, and you know the, the weight. I have kids who are you know early twenties, late teens, and really worry about the burden, and often don't honestly talk to them a lot about it because i don't want dad's job to be you know to be you know a, a burden on them um we're, we're recording this show with a live audience and one question from a listener Lori asks can we make a movie about the amazon being burned for grazing lands and growing palm oil and focus on the companies behind that so they can be boycotted and shamed into stopping what they are doing celine Costeau, is that is that your next film
3: Oh, my next film. I I have to uh, first openly admit that I have a little bit of uh, storytelling exhaustion, (laughs) Um, which is hard to admit on a discussion about storytelling. It'll go away, (laughs) silly. It'll be fine. (laughs) I feel like I just got through this one and and, um, the next one. Yeah, there will, of course, there will be a next one. I mean, this is is who we are. It's not what we do. It's just who we are. Um, You know what I think is unfortunate about the whole... uh, just talking about the, the fires in the Amazon is that when the fires happened a couple of years ago, um, or at least when the press around the fires happened a couple of years ago, um, people said, oh, you know, what's happening with the fires? We need to stop this. I'm like, do you realize the fires happen every year, every year, every year? it's just when there is a lull in the news or when the fires are bigger or when there's a scandal around it because there's a certain president who blatantly doesn't really care um the thing about telling a story about the fires in the amazon is that the i'm going to say the powers that be i'm not going to get political but political and corporate powers that be don't want that to stop because when the land is cleared you can then sow crop or put cattle. And so if a land is cleared legally or illegally, the trees are done. Um, and the next thing that's gonna happen is is cattle grazing and um and agriculture. So it's nothing new. Um, this is where the the storytelling exhaustion kicks in because I feel like not just my family, but so many people have repeating have been repeating stories over and over and over again. And at the same time, going back to the previous question, it can't create eco-anxiety. The young generation really feels it. My son's younger. He's nine. Um, He acutely knows what's going on because he sees me working every day. And when somebody says, what does your mom do? He says, oh, Celine, you know, my mom is, she's saving the jungle and the indigenous people. I'm I'm not doing that by myself. (laughs) Um, I think, first of all, we all need to take responsibility, um, because the story's ours. And, and going back to the, the beginning of this conversation, you asked me about Beto Murubo. Um When somebody in the audience asked Beto of the Marubo tribe, what can they do to help? They saw the film, what can we do? Beto says, now that you've, you've seen my story, keep telling the story because it becomes yours. And I think that that's something that we can ask our audiences to do. Own the story like it's yours, because then you will do something about it. So whether it's Amazon fires, plastics in the ocean, the polar bear, own the story like it's yours and then do something about it. Find your passion and follow through.
0: Another question from our live audience watching the live stream. Sarah says, do you feel there's a way that environmental filmmaking can go beyond the visual showing conditions, people, beauty, and solutions? Uh, Davis Guggenheim, one of the critiques of Inconvenient Truth was it was short on solutions. Do you think now we can have a compelling story that is positive and shows solutions?
1: Of course. And I think uh, there are so many (laughs) incredible stories that have been told. By the people, you know, by Christina and Celine, and uh, if you look at climate change as bigger than a world war, which I think it is, it's a it's a inaccurate comparison. But let's say World War II. There have been hundreds of stories about World War II. You know, some are very technical, some are very historic, some have been about a, a, a few soldiers, some have been about people who were um, who are victims. Uh, some are cultural, some are romantic. Some are um, uh, vilifying enemies. Some are lifting up heroes. They're, they're, and to, to take that back to climate change, I think there are thousands and thousands of stories that we will have to continue to, to tell and uh
0: the difference and, of course davis is that you know we know how world war II ended and i you know i've i've heard ira glass for example say climate stories are depressing because we know how they're going to end we're all screwed and if you know it's like the 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 ending is not a surprise and it also hasn't happened yet so doesn't that create a challenge for storytelling of something as it's unfolding
1: it's a huge challenge uh it's not like world war 2 where there's you know nazis to hate um I mean, there's places like ExxonMobil uh, which are truly evil corporations and they've acted very badly, but the climate change itself is not something you can look at and touch, right and the positive things you do don't have immediate response it's really hard, and it feels impossible. It feels like what I'm doing doesn't help, and it feels like even if I do what I'm doing helps, it feels too big so it's a real it's probably the most challenging. <laughs> for sure, the most challenging thing that humankind has ever uh, made and, and, and we've made it. It's also one of the even more challenging for us to, to, to figure out how to describe and to figure out how to fix. I'm overwhelmed by it. I'm humbled by it. And, and yet we have to. Yeah, we have no choice. We have no choice.
0: Celine, you mentioned how your sub film subjects have asked only that you, you take their stories and, and make them yours. How are stories, you know, important in our culture and how can we do a better job uh, passing them along?
3: Well, I mean, I think, first of all, let's not forget that we're all storytellers. I mean, the three of us are, are here, you know, talking about our, our work and our careers as storytellers, but we are all you sitting around a fire with a beer. You're a storyteller coming home from holiday when we're allowed to go on holiday again. You're a storyteller because you come back you, you come back with those um those moments and those memories. Um I think first of all is to you know own your own story but share it with others. Listen to other people listen. I have had to relearn the art of listening because listening with indigenous people is more time consuming. It's more proactive. You're, you're there as an active listener. You can't be thinking about how you're going to respond. You really need to be absorbing. Um, so I think those are, those are all skills, um, to, to relearn and to remember. And I think going back to what, what Davis was saying as well is that we are, um, we, we are inherently, um, all interconnected with this, we need to be present with it. There might not be tangible solutions, but it is about consciousness. It is about that shift and and unless we start reconnecting with nature, reconnecting with ourselves, and reconnecting with others, climate change is always going to seem like this far away subject. Um, so I would say just start and sit quietly, contemplate let's let's get off of these all the time. i'm just as guilty, and just spend a moment reflecting about our place. On this planet and with each other. And I think then we're going to start realizing what's truly important in our lives. And, and that's going to start, I believe, a tide shift in our relationship with our own future.
0: We've been talking about visual storytelling with Celine Cousteau, Christina Mittermeyer, and Davis Guggenheim. There's another piece of uh, documentaries and, uh, you know, song and, and music is an important part of of these storytellings. You know, Melissa Etheridge wrote the theme song titled I Need to Wake Up, a roaring anthem about speaking up that's the theme for an inconvenient truth. When I returned from the Arctic for the first time in 2007, I assembled a slideshow, arranged that song, and I cried at my kitchen table for weeks putting it together. I still get mushy when I hear that song. And I think it's underappreciated. There's no enduring theme song for climate and the way we shall overcome is for civil rights or others. I think that song is as good as any. Um, uh, Davis Guggenheim is a person who put that together. I'm curious about how that song holds up. It's clearly more people know the music than the song, but I'm just curious in your thoughts about a plug for that song. I think it's powerful and it still holds up.
1: It's a beautiful song. Uh, It really is incredible and it captured a moment and a feeling that the theme of this show is um, visual storytelling. Well, this is how songwriting can help. And uh, it just shows you that it's going to take a lot of voices and a lot of different expressions, scientists, filmmakers, photographers, um, songwriters. It takes all of us.
2: Can I, can I add something to that, Greg, if I may? Do you think, Davis, I mean, there was a moment when we started talking about climate change when the conversation was truly cerebral. And I feel like in the beginning, at least, it left a lot of people out. You know, people don't like to feel stupid. And it's just when you start looking at those graphs, you're like, oh, I don't get what they're telling me. You know, I'm just gonna not think about it. But through song and through story and through photography, we lower the price of entry into the most important conversation of our lives. And like you said, Celine, we're all storytellers. And I feel that the stories that we're telling somehow are empowering people to feel included. And we're giving them permission to... Become environmentalists, you know, to care about this issue. We need many more.
1: I, I, I agree 100%. And I also think we need to be conscious of how the urgency is changing. Like 10 years ago or 15 years ago, we needed to convince people that it was real. And then we need to convince people it's uh, that humans are causing it. <laughs> and then you want to convince people that this is the most urgent story of our time. It keeps going, Right. The story and the, the 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 barriers to understanding and taking full action keep shifting. And understanding where people are in this story and meeting them there, like you both are in your work, and uh, you know all this, uh, is, is, is 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 the thing I'm always trying to crack. That's why I'm going back to my son and that sort of weird disconnect between him making a life choice about having children and then not talking about it. It's like okay, there's something there. I'm always thinking up where are people in this moment?
2: And then there's something else because in the conversation about climate change, we often Uh, don't talk about the biodiversity loss that's going with it, right? These two parallel things. And they're they're hand in hand. And the solution for a lot of climate change is going to be to protect biodiversity or to restore habitats. And so we can't leave that part of the conversation out and allow the Elon Musk's of the world to, you know, come up with a machine that solves the issue when we already have all the machinery on this planet that can solve the issue if only we choose to protect it.
3: I I think this brings us back to an earlier part of the conversation Conversation with my octopus teacher, um, where there's an emotional side of the conversation and an intellectual side. And if we only focus on the intellectual side, then it does seem daunting and overwhelming to your point, Christina. I think if we focus on the emotional side, then, then we're leaving information out. But to the point of Davis and, and your son and his friends, they're reacting on an emotional level, not just on a logical level. I think all of that comes into play and it goes back to the psychology. So I think you're you're right on Davis in this direction. the psychology of climate change, the psychology of understanding ourselves in this current time and space. What is at stake? Do we understand it? What are we willing to do about it without going to panic button? Panic button only leads to chaos, right? We know chaos doesn't solve anything. So can we move forward in a, in a thoughtful, meditative calm way, where we actually provide people with tangible solutions, where they exist, and not try to get them to solve the world. Because I had a friend who told me once, oh, I feel so good knowing you're out there protecting the planet. And I was like, time out. Hold on a second. Don't <laughs> check. It's protected. Selena's on it. It's <laughs> Tuesday. I'm good. <laughs> it's it's it, true. It's inclusive, which I think is beautiful, right? It's inclusive. It's like, no, come with me. I have beautiful things to show you and you can do something about it. I think that's what we're all trying to do.
0: filmmaker and explorer Céline Cousteau on telling climate stories and images and sound. We also heard from photographer and conservationist Christina Miedermeyer and Davis Guggenheim who directed the Academy Award winning documentary An Inconvenient Truth. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Sarah Catherine Coxon is our senior producer. Our producer is Tyler Reed. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Steve Fox is director of advancement. Devin Strolovich edited the program. Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.